you'd open your Bibles to uh, page, if you have the Pew Bible here, you can follow along. It's probably, probably be easiest if we do this. Uh, you can use your phone if you want, but um, it's, we'll all be doing the same thing here. Page 520, uh, Psalm 136. You can use your own Bible, obviously, if you the regular one, but just for the sake of not having to scroll and all that. Um, Psalm 136. We're going to do this as a call and response, and this is kind of going to be our, our opening prayer, uh, prayer of illumination uh, before the message. And again, there are some themes here uh, that are kind of continuous with what we're seeing in Genesis. So Psalm 136, verses 1 through 26, I will read uh, the first part, and then you all respond together, for his steadfast love endures <coughs> forever. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. Heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. I love that progression there, that picture of God's faithfulness to His covenant people, of what He did in creating them and sustaining them, providing for them all along the way. And those are themes that we're going to be looking at here in Genesis, beginning with creation and then looking at the forming of a nation and God's blessing on His people. I'd encourage you, if you 
are going to be with us uh, for a while and you weren't able to make it last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon from last week. It's posted on the website. Um, I don't usually tell people to go back and listen to messages, but it was kind of the overview of Genesis, and I think it's really helpful uh, for where we're going, and it set a good foundation for, for different things that we're going to be talking about. Excuse me. And last week, I argued that we find ourselves today in a, in a place, in a world that has many competing narratives, narratives that are trying to answer some of the deepest questions of life. Why are we here? Is there meaning and purpose in the, our lives amidst the chaos that is around us? Is there a God? And if so, can we know Him? Has He revealed Himself to us? And these are not new questions that we wrestle with today in our world. These are questions that people have wrestled with for ages, trying to figure out how did this all start? Where did we come from? There's a Babylonian creation myth called Enuma Elish, where Marduk, the storm god, he splits Tiamat, who's the sea goddess, he splits her in half and kills her to create the heavens and the earth. And then Marduk kills Kinu, her son, and he mixes his blood with the earth in order to make human beings. That was how they made sense of their world. That was how they thought about the world coming into being. There were Egyptian creation myths where the world emerged from some infinite, lifeless sea. And we have the Bible's account of an eternal God creating everything out of nothing. And there are similarities with some of those ancient Near Eastern creation myths, but there are also some very great differences. Later on, there are more stories in different cultures. But then we came to the age of enlightenment, enlightenment, right? Where man was the center of all things, and, and we, we got past all those stories and those myths from the past, and we just figured life out, right? Um, it's all just material. It's, there's no God. We're, we're done with those stories. It's paved the way for Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest, right? Evolution just explains how we got here. Well, why on earth in our day and age, if we're, if we're past all of that, right? If we're past all of these myths, if we're past trying to figure these things out, why on earth in our day and age would we see a story like this in the New York Times? This was just from November of 2017. Leaning on the stars to make sense of the world. James, you said you love stars. But this is talking about this resurgence of, of horoscopes and resurgence of astrology Millennials are, are getting interested in astrology and, and going and reading horoscopes. And here's just talking about this guy, Eric Coppolino, who writes for the New York Daily News. He describes the horoscopes as like a carefully timed fortune cookie, only a little bit longer. And it's explaining some things. The, the author of the article then says, why in an age of information overload and in a new saturated city like New York are written horoscopes still so popular? And I would say because people are still looking for answers to the deepest questions of life. There's a lady, Gallet Atlas, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but she's a professor at New York University, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Listen to what she says, this is amazing. 
She says, what makes us feel safe in the world is order, boundaries, and sequence. And those three, three things are things that astrology can give us, Ms. Atlas said. Especially in a time when the world doesn't feel safe. We tend to search for an order that makes sense. Oh, really? Goes on back to the, the Mr. Coppolino, the guy who writes for the paper. <clears throat> He says, most people are shell-shocked right now. They're in pain. The world is devastating. People are exhausted. And a purpose of the horoscope at that point becomes a spiritual touchstone. And these people may still believe in evolution. They may still believe, you know, maybe there's no God. But there is a hunger. There is a desire right now for people to figure things out. To say there's got to be more than what I've been told, right? There's got to be more to the story. I want to submit to you that Genesis is as relevant as ever right now in the day and age that we live in. People are desperate to find order and meaning amidst the chaos of life. To find rest from the weariness of this world. I think the first chapter of the Bible is the place that people should be going to start looking for answers to these questions. Last week I argued that we can't just read our meaning into the text and use the text to support a particular view. Now, it may support that view, but we miss the point if that's what we go to Genesis for. If we go to Genesis just to debunk evolution, or if we go to Genesis to say, hey, you know, the stars are not made for you to like do horoscope stuff. That's not the purpose. Uh, I was reminded this past week, I'm reading a book with a friend called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, it's a great book. And in the first chapter they talk about, and this I got this in your notes if you want to jot a couple things down there. They make a distinction between exegesis and hermeneutics. Okay, these are some big words. I want to unpack this for you. Exegesis is us going to the Bible, and kind of the, 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 the phrase there is, then and there. What did, what did it mean for the original people? What did it mean for the original writer? We can't just take meaning out of it because of what we want it to say. We've got to go, and we've got to dig, and we've got to find what was, the, what was the intended meaning of the passage. So as we come to Genesis, what's the intended meaning? And then hermeneutics is interpretation. There's, there's more to it than this, but we kind of ask the here and now. What does it mean for us here and now, after we've done the work of, of exegesis, figuring out what it's originally intended, then how do, we, how do we interpret it? How do we apply it to our lives? And another thing is the aim of our interpretation should be to get the plain meaning of the text. What is the plainest, simplest reading of the text? So we should ask here, what is Moses trying to plainly communicate through the words of Genesis 1-1 to 2-3? Well, let's go to the text and see. It'd be on page 1 in your Bibles. <clears throat> Very beginning. And I would encourage you, as we're going through this, uh, if, you're, if you are taking notes, or if you write in your Bible... To jot down some things. Jot down, there's, there's a lot of words and phrases that are, that are repeated here. And pay attention to what's going on. 
in this chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3. Excuse me. And also, sorry, one more thing. Our, uh, our little call and response after the reading of the text is different this week. Um, so have your, uh, have your worship chat handy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created this, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth 
according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. <coughs> then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In the beginning was the word, the word is with God, and the word was God. Amen. We're going to look at this in four parts. Uh, you see there the title, the sermon, and in your outline. We're going to look at creation, chaos, order, and rest. Creation, first of all. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're introduced to God, the Creator. God is mentioned 35 times here in these 34 verses. It's all about Him. Last week, we talked about the New City Catechism question number two, the question, what is God? The answer was that God is the Creator and Sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And I don't think there's any other passage in the Bible that speaks to this more than Genesis 1. We're introduced to the God who is both the creator and the sustainer of everything, of all of life, of everything in this world. One, one, commentary, one commentator, Derek Kidner, said, This passage, indeed the whole Bible, is about God first of all. To read it with any other primary interest, which is all too possible, is to misread it. To read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. The primary interest of the scriptures is God. 
God created. This word here, in the Hebrew, the word bara, it is only used, it's only ever used with God. God is the only one who creates in this way. You've probably heard the term ex nihilo, meaning God created out of nothing. It doesn't always mean that, um, but it, here it certainly means that in Genesis 1. 1. Speaks to God's sovereignty, speaks to his power, speaks to him alone being the creator of all things. And then this, this pairing of, of heavens and earth here, it's basically a, a, a way in Hebrew just to say everything. God created everything. I think a lot of us here, uh, we like to make things, right? We like to make food. We like to create food. We like to watch cooking shows where people are creating food. We like to do building projects. We like to make artwork, right? Paintings or sculpting. We like to create music. We like to write our own songs, right? There's this part of us, that's what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. We want to be a part of, of making things, of seeing this world flourish and be filled. We don't have the same create everything out of nothing power, obviously, that God has, but we have been endowed with creativity from our Creator, and that is a huge blessing as image bearers of God. So God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Do we really believe that? Do we believe this account here? That this is true? That what God's word tells us in the very beginning is true? Creation. We talked a lot about that last week. Now we come to chaos in verse 2. It's a very interesting verse. I think it's a little surprising if we really kind of step back and take some time to think about it. It's easy to just read through this and, and not think about the implications of this. It says that the earth was without form and void. Other translations say formless and empty. It's kind of a fun word combination in the Hebrew. It's tohu vabohu. Tohu Vabohu is formless and void. And then it says that darkness was over the face of the deep. I don't want to speculate too much here, but I think there's something happening here in this primordial chaos that speaks to the need to have order brought into it. Tohu Vabohu, uh, the word bohu for, for void, is only used two other times in the Old Testament. And each time it's used, it's always used together with tohu. So the va is kind of the and. Tohu, va, bohu. Those are always used together. One time is in Isaiah 34. And the other time is in Jeremiah chapter 4. In Jeremiah chapter 4, this is God speaking about judgment on the people of Judah and on the city of Jerusalem in particular. It's a picture of judgment that is in an interesting way, a return to Genesis 1 and 2. Pay attention to the language here. It's not a pretty picture. It's not the way that things were intended to be. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah 4, 22. 
For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. Remember we talked about some of the themes in Genesis, this good and evil, curse and blessing. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. And listen to what it says. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So there's this return here in, in this prophecy in Jeremiah. There's this, this picture of judgment. There's this return to this primordial chaos, formless and void, not the way that things were intended to be. It's an undoing of creation. We see in verse 3 that God was there. So the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God is going to confront the chaos and bring order into the chaos. Could it be that chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3, that this is a microcosm of chapters 1 to 3? We talked last week about creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, this big theological structure that plays out throughout the whole Bible. Could it be that what we have here is a microcosm of, of those three chapters, which is a microcosm of the whole Bible? In other words, does this creation week here, this creation, chaos, order, and rest, help set the stage for the bigger story of the Bible, the bigger picture what God is going to do to redeem his people. I don't think it's an accident that that prophecy there in Jeremiah with judgment is pointing back to this scene, saying this is not the way that it's supposed to be. Let's look at the next stage, which is order. This is going to be the focus of the bulk of the rest of this text here from verses 3 to 31 as we see the six days of creation unfold. Order. I hope you didn't come here uh, this afternoon looking for a definitive answer about the length of the days of creation uh, in Genesis chapter 1. I hope that wasn't uh, your goal. First of all, uh, I'm not a science guy. There are people here who know way more about science and who are way more equipped. James was just talking about Sharks and dorsal fins and all these crazy biological things. Like, that's way, the stuff is way beyond me. Like, I'm not an expert in this stuff, having the science conversations. If you love that stuff, go to the resources folder that we, that we mentioned. There's some articles on there by a guy named Vern Poitras, who was a seminary professor, and it'll, like, blow your mind. Like, deep stuff about different views of, of creation, so... If you really want to dig into that, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Second, um, this, what we believe about the length of the days of creation is not a test of orthodoxy. Um, 
If you look at the back of your little insert there, if I can find mine, it's in here somewhere. I have a target diagram on there. And we've looked at this before, um, kind of as we were doing some planning for planting the church and talking about what our values are. And if you look at the center of the diagram, it's talking about absolutes. Things that are absolutely, must, absolutely core to the Christian faith. And we would say you cannot deny that Jesus is the Son of God. If you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, then, then you're not a Christian. Then you've, you've stopped believing in Orthodox Christianity. We would say you cannot deny the Trinity. Uh, you, I, would, I would add you cannot deny the, the virgin birth and the resurrection. There's, there's some core things that we would say are absolutes to be a Christian. And then there are things in that next outer ring that are convictions. Things that are very important to us. Things that might set us apart from, from some other churches in some very important matters. Um, and for some people, the, the, the view of Genesis 1 and the length of creation days might fit under that conviction level circle. And that's totally fine. It's it's an important issue. For others, it might fit in the opinion level. You might say, well, you know, I got, a, I got some thoughts on it, but I'm still a little unsure on, on the exact mechanisms of everything. Um, and that's fine. Some people might be like, I have no, I haven't even heard about this stuff before. Like, this is a question. I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's fine. Hopefully by the end you'll have some more uh, ideas about what you think about it. I'll let you know that I do have a view, um, and I'll share that with you in a little bit, so sit tight. Just a brief overview of, so in, the, in our denomination, in the PCA, uh, there are a lot of different papers that are available, different reports on different theological topics, and I actually have this on the resources folder, it's the PCA Creation Report, um, and it's like, the one I put up there is like 90 pages long. Um, it's really long, but starting on like the 20th page, if you want to look into this stuff, uh, particularly, it's, it's section four in there. It uh, basically has the four views that are kind of like acceptable in our denomination to like be an elder uh, in our denomination, to be a teaching elder or a ruling elder. And there are a few other offshoots from some of these views that might be acceptable, but these are kind of the main four views. Uh, again, if you're interested, I would encourage you to go and look at that. The first one is the calendar day interpretation. It's six literal 24-hour days. And, um, you know, I won't go into all the different people who have, have held that view, but it's, it's been a very common view, obviously. Uh, the second one is the day-age inter interpretation. And that is saying that, basically, the days in Genesis were just really long periods of time. That's a very common view uh, held by some very well-respected theologians. That's, that's one of the other ones. Uh, third view is the literary framework view, and this is probably the most complicated and most misunderstood view. Um, it's basically like an argument, the people who use this view say it's kind of an argument that Genesis was written as a polemic or an argument against uh, the views of the time, the, the creation myths and the views of the gods and all these different things. So it was written for that purpose. Um, also that Days 1 through 3 mirror days 4 through 6. And uh, this is actually, I think, one of the most helpful things that the framework view really helps to bring out. And we'll be seeing a little bit of, about that as we go on here. 
Again, if this is all just like over your head, don't worry about it. Uh, you can read more about it um, and, and dive into that if you're interested. But the fourth one is the analogical day interpretation. And this is kind of a modification of the day age view uh, where God's work days are analogous to our work days. And the focus really isn't so much on how long the days were, but it's like an analogy of our work days are an analogy to God's work days. So um, those are those four views. And just wanted to give you that, you know, tuck that away, and you can you can dig into that more if you want. Um, but it is helpful to know that there are differing opinions uh, among scholars who are who we would agree with on almost everything, um, and there's there is kind of some latitude there. So let's dive into this a little bit. Let's look at these six days, and we're gonna this is gonna be kind of thirty thousand foot overview. Uh, it's gonna be to be quick. We're going to zoom in for a few of the things, parts of day four and day six. But again, like I said, the, the structure of the days, the framework view, I think is really helpful here. Um, remember where we were in chapter or in verse two, that the earth was formless and void. So what is God going to do? He's going to bring order to the chaos. He's going to bring order to, excuse me, the formlessness. So he's going to fill the chaos with forms or realms in days 1 to 3. So days 1 to 3, uh, again this language here is from Meredith Klein, who's a framework guy. Um, God sets up earthly kingdoms in days 1 to 3. So the first kingdom that is set up is the heavens. The heavens are created in day 1. And then day 2, the seas are created. And then day three, the earth and the dry land is created. And then days four through six, God is going to fill those earthly kingdoms with kings and rulers. Okay? So day four, he fills the heavens with lights. And the lights, it says they're to rule over the day and to rule over the night. So there's this idea of these kingdoms being filled with kings or rulers. The heavens are filled with lights. And notice what it says. Look at verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. This is, most scholars think, you know, why wouldn't Moses have just used the word sun and moon? was because the Egyptian religions, the, the sun and moon were gods. They took the names of those gods and they worshipped them. So Moses didn't want to say the names, the Hebrew names of, of the sun and the moon, so that people wouldn't be confused and wouldn't say, oh, that's something that we worship just like the Egyptians do. So he just says, the greater light and the lesser light. It's very intentional, the language there is very intentional. And then I love the end of verse 16. And the stars. Like, oh, by the way, just the stars. James, you're saying you love the stars. Like, yeah, and the stars. I think this is a word of warning to our friends who are leaning on the stars to make sense of the world. That's not what they're for. That's not why God created the stars. God created the stars to point people to him, so that we would look up and say, wow, look what God has done. 
not doing divination and, and trying to get signs about our life and all these things in astrology. Lean on the one who made the stars. Day five. He fills the heavens with birds and the seas with living creatures. Verse 21 is interesting. God created the great sea creatures. Again, this word created here is bara, which is used in verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. Again, there's some very intentional, scholars think, language going on here. The great sea creatures, these were, these were sea monsters. These were the untamable, these were the scary, like Leviathan, right, in the book of Job. It's saying God created them. These are not these ancient monsters that, that we need to be afraid of. God created them. God filled the seas with them. So to these cultures who are worshiping and, and, and fearing these sea monsters, God created them out of nothing. And he blesses them, tells them to be fruitful and multiply. We come to day six. He fills the earth with animals Verses 24 and 25. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then we come to the crown jewel of God's creation in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. This idea here of, of image and likeness, uh, the ancient kings, and this still happens some places in the world today, but especially then, the ancient kings would go around to different places in, in their dominion. They would, they would set up images along borders. They would set up image statues of themselves in all these places to show this is my territory. Don't, don't come here. I'm the ruler here, right? So it's a statue of this king. Well, what God is doing here is saying, I'm setting, I'm setting images of myself here on the earth. I'm setting image bearers. Those are going to rule. Look at the language here, right? <coughs> Let them have dominion. Dominion over the fish. Dominion over the birds. Over all the creeping things. Man is made in God's image. And we are set here. To have dominion. To rule. Verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. Birds of the heavens. Every living thing that moves on the earth. We call this the cultural mandate. Or the creation mandate. It's the, it's the job that God gave to mankind, right? To fill the earth. To subdue the earth. To have dominion over the earth. As God's image bearers. 
We are to do that. It is a privilege and it is a responsibility. We should be good stewards of the creation as image bearers of God. We should care for other people who were made in God's image as fellow image bearers of God. Just in a few chapters, in two chapters, we're going to see how all of this spirals out of control and how the human race is, is plunged into, into darkness and how sin comes in and takes over. How these good intentions that were here, these things that we were called to do, how we, we put them aside and, and went our own way. The end of day six. There's, there's, let me just say it. There's so many things here <laughs> that we can talk about. Uh, we're kind of doing this flyover view of, of Genesis. We'll get into more of these things in the next few chapters. Um, there's a lot here. I would encourage you to, to dig into this and, and look at more of these things. But there's a great summary here at the end of at the end of the chapter, verse 31. God saw everything that He had made, and behold. It was very good. God looks over everything. He looks over his creation that he has just made. And he is pleased. And that brings us to the last part, which I think is often the most overlooked part of this whole account. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Creator looks out over all of his creation. He is very pleased with what he has done, and he is finished, and he sits down, as it were, not to rest because he's exhausted, not because he's tired from what he has just accomplished, but to delight in what he has just done, in creating all things. Remember last week we talked about a major theme that we're going to see in Genesis is this idea of blessing versus cursing. Just as God blessed the sea creatures and the birds in verse 22, and then the humans in verse 28, here he blesses the seventh day, and it says that he made it holy. God sets this day apart from all the other days. It says, because on it God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. The word here for rested is Shabbat. You may figure out the connection. That word is where we get the word for Sabbath, this idea of rest. It's a day of celebration. God rests. He sits down to celebrate the work that he has done. And this setting apart of the Sabbath day as a blessed day and a holy day, this is repeated in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is also the commandment with the longest explanation after the commandment. So Exodus 20, 8-11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, if you want to know what my view is on creation, it's the literal six-day view. I believe in the literal six-day, 24-hour view. And I think that the explanation of the Sabbath here in Exodus 20, for me, is the strongest support for that view out in the whole Bible outside of Genesis chapter 1. I think what we see here in the Sabbath, the picture of the Sabbath week and God setting that day apart, that is a picture of our week, of our work week. And I think, I think back to talking about the plainest reading of the text, I think this is the plainest reading of Genesis chapter 1 for an ancient people, uh, for a modern people. If you sit down to read this chapter, I think, personally, I think you have a hard time coming away with any other view if you don't already have some presuppositions coming into reading that. So I think it is the plainest reading. But if there is a practical and a theological takeaway or an application for us today from this passage, I think it must be informed by viewing the unifying significance of this whole narrative. Alan Ross, uh, in his commentary, Creation and Blessing, which is a beast, um, it's good, <laughs> diving into it, his, his summary of this whole section here, he, said his, he has a short summary and a long summary. His short summary is, if you want to write this down, God, by his powerful word, transforms the chaos into a holy and blessed creation. God, by his powerful word, transforms the chaos into a holy and blessed creation. That's the short summary. Now, the longer summary, I think is very important in how it applies to us. He said this passage is, is significant also in the lives of Christians. Above and beyond asserting the fact of creation in much the same way it did for Israel, the passage provides an important theological lesson. The believer enters into a life of Sabbath rest from works and embarks on a life of holiness in that rest. We learn from the creation account that God is a redeeming God who changes darkness to light, death to life, and chaos to blessing. That God is absolutely sovereign over all life and all pagan ideas that would contend for our allegiance. And I would add there are pagan ideas contending for our allegiance today, everywhere around us. That God works by His powerful Word to create, to redeem, and to sanctify. Obedience to His powerful Word, either the written Word or the living Word, our Savior, will transform believers into His glorious image. Being transformed into the image of our Savior, that is what we're after. I want to conclude by considering how this creation, chaos, order, and rest sequence is seen in the person and work 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You just, if you're taking notes, you can write these verses down in the, the sections there. The first one is John 1, 1 through 5, and I think this speaks to creation and chaos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about that in relation to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Next, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This one speaks to creation and order. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Order here. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as His name, as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then Colossians 1 15 to 20, which was our assurance of pardon, speaks to creation, order, and rest. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, again, order. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, that we see rest. Matthew 11, 28-30, speaking of rest, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Finally, Hebrews, you can write this down and look it up later, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, this whole section is speaking about rest. And it says in Joshua, starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, 4, 8 through 10, it says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So we have this picture here of this already, not yet. We have already entered into a form of rest, but there still remains a day. There still remains an ultimate rest, an ultimate Sabbath rest. So we look forward. 
I want to ask you in conclusion this afternoon, are you resting in the one who created all things? Who conquered the chaos by bringing order and accomplished rest by finishing the work that his father gave him to complete? So that when he cried out from the cross, it is finished. It meant that he completed the work that you could not complete for yourself so that you can come to Him and that you can rest in Him. My encouragement to you is to come to Christ for rest. He's the maker. He's the sustainer of your life. He's the only one who can give you true rest from the chaos around you, the chaos of your own life, the chaos in this world. Come to Him for rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful reminder of what you have done to bring all creation into existence. To speak, and it was so, to bless humanity, to give us this wonderful commission this wonderful mandate to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion. God, I pray that we would take that seriously, that we would be good stewards of the gifts we've been given by you, that we would see the reality of what the image of God means in those around us, that we would love others and serve others because they are made in your image. And that we, from this pattern that we have seen, that we would also rest from our striving and our labors, our striving to, to make a name for ourselves, our striving to be our own unique individual people, that we would come to you that we would find rest in you, and that you would give rest for our weary souls. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.